Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thought we'd start with a game today. I have a slogan game for you. We've played the game before, but I thought it was time to play it again. You insert the word that's missing. Built blank tough. Ford. Very good. Nobody said Chevy. Have a blank and a smile. Coke. Yeah, there you go. Nothing's finer than... South Carolina. Good job. Clemson. What? (laughs) Giving the gift of life, right? The Red Cross. Giving blood is good, of course, because it helps donors and strangers and friends alike. We don't hear much about the giving of the gift of death. Let's face it, giving of death is not really that much of a gift, is it? My favorite line concerning giving death as a gift comes from one of Stephanie and I's favorite movies, Dragonheart. The wicked king Enon claims to be against the death penalty, claiming that death ought not be a punishment, it ought to be a release. Now, you don't think too much of the line when he says it the first time, but the second or the third time he says it, He's having a fight with a young lady. He wants the young lady to be his queen, and she doesn't want to be his queen, but she comes to him and begs and says, begs, 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 please. She comes begging, please release my blind father who has been imprisoned in this work camp. So Enon takes a crossbow and shoots him in the heart, bragging, see, now don't you love me? I have fully and freely released your father. And then he says the line again, death ought not be a punishment, it ought to be a release. Today we're going to talk a little bit about bioethics, and our question before us today is prenatal screening. And the problem with prenatal screening is not the prenatal screening in and of itself. It's usually done in utero, usually done by amniocentesis, and there's nothing wrong with the process as it stands, as a a process. It's not evil in and of itself. I mean, we take lots and lots of steps to protect and guard the life of the unborn as well as its mother. And amniocentesis can indeed be put to good use. In fact, it was first developed entirely to detect rare blood group incapabilities between the pregnant mom and the child that she was carrying, because that could cause a great deal of problems if their blood is incompatible. So we've learned how to heal that. We can test for it now, and when it comes up, we're like, okay, this is, this is what we need to do to make sure that both the baby and the mother are well. But we deceive ourselves when we suppose that this retune, re, this, this, uh, retune, Routine. I think it's even spelled right. I just can't get the word out. Routine. We confuse ourselves as we think this routine feature is just another assistance. It's not that it seems because it puts a lot of parents upon a very difficult path. We tell ourselves that we're only concerned about the baby's best, but what happens when the test tells us something that we don't want to hear? What is our recourse? 
I mean, when, when we take the test and the test comes back negative and everything's great, we're all like, woohoo, yeah, this is great. But what happens when the test comes back positive? If it comes back as the, a chance of Down syndrome or spina bifida or muscular dystrophy? You see, as we talked about last week and the week before, technology sort of has a movement all of its own. It has a, it has a progress that will continue to progress whether we okay it or not, whether we think about it or not, whether we understand it deeply or not. Parental screening does not always prepare us for the kind of commitment that parenthood requires because parenthood requires an unconditional commitment. For many genetic abnormalities, abortion is the only treatment. And therein lies the biggest of the problems. You see, modern medicine can cure a lot of stuff. We can cure all kinds. We can cure pages of things. But we can't cure everything. And what do we do when the diagnosis is something that we can't cure? You see, medicine doesn't cure patients by killing patients. It's just not possible. That's not the way healing works. The only, the only entity I've ever heard of that can take death and turn it into healing and to turn it into life is Jesus. Jesus can do it. But then again, we don't really call it medicine. <laughs> At that point, we call it religion. God uses our death as a passage as we move from this mortal life into immortality. And God uses that at his own behest. Now, again, we don't really think about Jesus giving us death. But to a very certain sense, in baptism, that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus takes his death, and then applies it to us. He gives it to us. Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about what, what Jesus has done, this great exchange. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried by baptism into his death. Simply put, we have already died. And not only have we already died in Christ, we have already been resurrected with him as well. Our resurrection is as sure as anything else in, our, in the world or in our life. It is completely assured. Because we have the word of Christ, we have the promise of Christ, we put our faith in that word of promise. And it happens through baptism. Now, baptism is not new. To Israel. John the Baptist didn't make baptism up. He didn't do this on his own accord. Baptism is a Greek word. It basically just means to wash. Right? People wash things. All over the world, people are washing things. And Israel loved to wash things. They did not abide by the five-minute rule. A five-second rule. I'm sorry. It's a five-minute rule in my house. Five-second rule in a lot of houses. They did not abide by the five-second rule. Anything that was dirty had to be washed. 
If it looked dirty, it had to be washed. If it was thought of to be dirty, it had to be washed. It was Levitically mandated. If it's dirty, you wash it, which is great. You can wash pretty much anything you can think of, with the exception of a soul. How do you wash your soul? I mean, it'd be great if we could pop that baby out and put it in the washer every once in a while, right? <laughs> pop it out, get a little pressure wash, <laughs> throw it in the washing machine. But we can't do that. A little SOS on our souls is not going to help anything. And so people do what they can. They do the best that they can worldwide, to tell you the truth. Worldwide, they do the best that they can with making their souls clean, with ritualized cleansings, spiritualized cleansings, symbolic cleansing, the breathing in of smoke, the sweating in lodges, the washing in, in rivers. And what's all of this doing? It is symbolically cleaning people, but does it really clean them? This is why John is rejecting Jesus. When Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John's immediate reaction is, whoa, bub. I mean, that's not the quote, but he's, no. Because John is the prophet of Jesus. John is the prophet of the Lord. And he knows that Jesus has no sin to wash. There's no reason for him to be here and to be washed in this river to spiritually to cleanse his soul because he, he doesn't have any blemish upon it. And Jesus argues with John and says, no, this is appropriate that we do this for three reasons. Number one, as a human, Jesus is born under the law and humility unto the law of God requires and demands that he be cleansed just like all the other humans. Number two, Jesus demands to be baptized because it confirms John's own ministry. When Jesus participates in what John is doing, it lends credence to what John is doing. It also shows us that what John is doing and what Jesus is about to do are not separated. They are a joined entity being done by the Lord God Almighty. And number three, Jesus' presence in with and under that water distinguishes the physical act of water washing as a new spiritual activity. This is evidenced in the gifting of the Holy Spirit in the text as it comes down in the form of a dove. In the end, it's not Jesus' soul that gets washed, though. In the end, Jesus' soul still was clean to begin with. It's clean after. Whose soul gets cleaned is yours. Jesus' baptism is vicarious. His death is vicarious as well. Just as his resurrection was given for you. Jesus, you think about it for a second. Jesus didn't need to be resurrected. He didn't need to be resurrected. He couldn't actually die anyway. He gives up his spirit. He gives up his body. He suffers the separation of his body and his soul. And he doesn't necessarily need to, to reclaim it. He reclaims it for you. Jesus is resurrected so that you can see that the resurrection from the dead is as good as God promised. And then God demonstrates that it can be done. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first to be resurrected. And God does that. Jesus does that so that you can see it as an illustration to go, you know what? It has happened once. God has promised it will happen to me. And it will. 
All of this Jesus does for you. He gives you death. And then he gives us his resurrection as well. All of these gifts are applied to you. Baptism is truly is a matter of life and death. But without Christ's death, baptism wouldn't have any power. My father-in-law was baptized in the Ganges rivers a bunch of years ago. My, my in-laws, Betty and Lee, went to, went to India. And when in India, do as the Indians, right? They're all washing in the Ganges. My father-in-law does this all the time, right? If you go to Egypt, you ride camels. If you go to Greek, Greece, you, 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 you debate on Mars Hill. You go to England, you go to London, you have tea with the queen. I mean, it's a fake queen, but you, you still, you have tea in London. and So, washing the Ganges River, of course. Of course. It didn't do him any good. Tell you the truth, if you've ever seen the Ganges River, he probably came out dirtier than he went in. It was just a washing, and barely a washing at that, to tell you the truth. And it was only a washing because it wasn't It wasn't connected to anything. The gift of Christ's death and life and resurrection is real and it's certain and it's everlasting and it's given unto you without any merit or worthiness in you. Christ our Lord takes your death upon himself for you, taking away the power of sin and death and hell. And in the day of judgment, Satan is going to accuse you of all sorts of things. And he's going to accuse you of a whole list. Of, there'll be a whole page of things that he's going to be able to accuse you of. And most of that stuff that he's going to accuse you of is true. The problem is those charges are not going to stick. They will not stick because you have the forgiveness of sins granted to you through Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. This is the promise of the Lord God Almighty that he has made unto you, that he has applied Jesus' sinless death unto you. In the day of judgment, there will be nobody to be able to bring charges against you because your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is to the west. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of God unto you. Let's listen again to Romans as Paul tells us about this, this great exchange. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. For the life that he lives now, he lives to God. So you must consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. You have been united with your Savior through his death and his resurrection as an inheritance. It is the epitome of a gift. The baptism that has made you an eternal child of God. A child in whom God is well pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.